everyone. This is Jacob Estrada with No Compromise. I'm in the studio with Mr. Trevor Roberts, who is a good friend of mine and an ex-classmate when I was in high school. I'm visiting with him today because we're going to talk about space and uh, the millennial role in that. We'll also talk about the underlining conflict with Russia and what that means for the NASA space program. Don't forget to check out the site, guys, nocompromiseblog.com. Uh, share it with your friends. Tell us if there's anything on the site that isn't working or if there's something we need to change that you don't like. If you hate it, let us know. I get into more detail about the site at a, in a different podcast, the Culture Commentary Podcast, so just check that out. That's also on the site. I really appreciate you guys uh, checking this interview out. It is the first one that I have done, and uh, the audio quality is a little bit weird because we're working with some different equipment. Hopefully, um, the future podcast will uh, actually be much, much better quality. Also, the inner, uh, also the issues that we kind of discussed are uh, slightly dated because I did have this podcast back in March. Uh, when most of these issues were very, very relevant. However, some of them might seem a little bit dated, so just bear with that. And uh, thank you for tuning in once again. Really appreciate it. So let's go ahead and uh, get on with uh, Trevor Roberts about this whole space issue. Um, so let's get right to it. Uh, go ahead and tell us a little about yourself, Trevor, and why I should give a crap about what you say about anything. Uh, maybe, I don't know. You... <laughs> uh... <laughs> My name is Trevor Roberts. I'm a uh, junior now at Texas Tech University. I study mechanical engineering. I just recently accepted a uh, internship appointment at the Kennedy Space Center to aid in the design, fabrication, uh, and engineering work that will go in eventually into the uh, SLS rocket system, which is currently being developed. And what's the SLSS rocket the system? The SLS uh, stands for Space Launch System. Uh, it is originally intended to be a replacement for the shuttle and that it will carry men and women uh, to not only uh, low Earth orbit, but also to points outside Earth orbit, such as lunar orbit, uh, and maybe even someday uh, you know, on a mission to Mars and asteroids. So ever since I've known you since high school, because I've known you for a little bit now, uh, you've love space you've been really into space and seeing you go from high school to actually going to tech um being an engineer uh what's what's being an engineer like now that you're you're kind of doing it for real is it is it really what you thought it would be is it especially at tech is there anything crazy well, there's, about there's it there's two sides to engineering especially uh being in school that i've kind of learned so you know take this with a grain of salt but with my experience, being an engineering student and being an engineer in industry are two very different things. In industry, it's a lot more about practice than it is theory. Uh, a lot of people get this image when they think of engineers, especially other tech students who may not know engineers or engineering students, that it's all math. And it, it is, in a certain respect, math. But in everyday kind of business in industry operations it's mostly you know we've done it this way let's continue doing it this way maybe tweaking a little bit really less relying on the theory and the math behind it whereas in academia the study of engineering there's a lot of math <laughs> uh, there's there's really no way of uh 
kind of sugarcoating that. It's, but you can do both, right? Like you can, well, yes, you can kind yes. of veer in and out and of both. Certainly, you know, on a level of, you know, development of the SLS or really even, uh, you know, when you talk about designing something as simple as like a gas station, there's a lot of math involved. The difference is, is that uh, in industry, so much of that has been automated by software that it's really a lot more kind of, you get a feel and a sense and, personally i i would think a uh competent engineer an engineer who uh, is really good at his job would be somebody who knows not only the theory but also has a kind of intuition about you know the physics behind it the structural mechanics involved uh in addition to the math and that's something that can only really be gained with experience so it's just a lot of trial and error, I guess, even. Well, not a, not a lot of trial and error, because a lot of the times these uh, trials end up costing millions of dollars. Oh, so okay. A lot of uh, really modeling, a lot of <laughs> a lot of computer work. Shows you how much of an engineer I am, which is funny <laughs> because I would, I'm technically a sound engineer, and there's lots of, I mean, I would say there's a, if you really want to get into it, there's a good level of math that goes into mm-hmm. any engineering thing, yes. especially with sound and how, how, it just you know, depends how, how deeply you want to get into exactly. it. Exactly. Like if you want to get into design, sound design, developments mm-hmm. of, I mean, that's how you, that's how the, you know, the tools that I use, that's how they develop. Like that's how they get made. And there's progress in the industry is because people take on those theoretical mm-hmm. research roles. Um, so where would you sit in that category? I would sit pretty firmly in the practical category. I had a uh, mentor when I was much younger who had worked with NASA. He'd worked with uh, at the tail end of the Apollo program. He was a flight engineer at the Johnson Space Center. And he told me when I asked him about, you know, do the engineers, you know, all this math, all of this, because uh, he, he, you know, worked in a day where right. they had slide rules. There weren't calculators. But even right. he said... <laughs> That uh, uh, you know, God no, <laughs> nobody would trust a uh, engineer to remember <laughs> these uh, you know, uh, the math behind it, uh, the formula, all of this involved. He said so much of it's delegated to computers, or really in his day, books and charts. And he said that his advice to a young engineer would be focus on the math, you know, understand the math, but un- also understand that uh. You're going to, no matter how much you think you learn in school, you're going to learn so much more wherever you start work. I would sit pretty firmly in the uh, practical category just because I have worked, you know, for an architecture company. I've worked with a uh, robotics laboratory. Uh, I've seen kind of a little bit how it operates. And that little bit that I have seen is pointed very heavily towards more practical uh, solutions than the theoretical knowledge. One of the biggest topics in our age now is a college, you know, what's college worth now? You know, you grow up and your parents are telling you, you know, you're going to college, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Because you you get to the point where there are lots of people in the industry who've gotten where they are and they didn't get a degree. You know, they didn't they well, didn't actually the do things like that. It's kind of been overinflated uh in the especially I would think in the past decade. The now don't get me wrong, a degree is very important. However, mm-hmm. I think the a degree can, on its own can only do so much. And people generally that I've witnessed have kind of placed this uh, importance on a degree that it can do all these amazing things, with it, which it can't. A, a degree 
guarantees you an education. It does not guarantee you employment. And that I think is the, the line that people, they fail to see that they think that one correlates with the other. And that's not always the case, especially in a field like engineering or, you know, science or any of the STEM fields. Well, essentially you're a lot of people, I think subconsciously believe that money gets you work. Like, Yes. Yeah, like, like essentially you're basically yeah. paying for I wish the, the rest of your life to be employed. I know. I, I wish it was too. But eventually you do reach that threshold where, you know, I guess as your mentor was saying, you have to take that leap from mm-hmm. academic to practical yes. at some point. And you have to, I mean, you know, you've been equipped with knowledge and now that you're going on to this NASA thing, how do you feel about, how do you feel school or, you know, how, how you feel prepared for that kind of thing. Well, about the same time last year, I started looking for summer work just because I knew I'd need a, need a job just to keep busy during the summer uh, while attending summer classes. And so I started, you know, browsing local uh, want ads and uh, a local company, uh, Cox Turks Architects, they put out a ad. They wanted a draftsman. I took several uh, years of uh, drafting uh AutoCAD classes in high school. And so I applied and said, mm-hmm. well, you know, it's a, yeah. and as it turns out, something completely unrelated to my field of study, you know, this is an architecture job, kind of uh, set me up very well to get this NASA and in other fields as well. I've just because you work in one field, you know, maybe it doesn't necessarily mean that uh, those skills aren't going to transfer to something else. The thing I learned most about, you know, with my current job was not really buildings, but more how to interface with engineers, architects, professionals, contractors, that kind of thing. And that, you know, is stuff they do not teach in school. That there's no class on how to, uh, you know, deal professionally with uh, clients and engineers, and at least not in the traditional engineering. Well, yeah, like it, I mean, of. for a good reason, you know, that's just experience. Well, it's yeah, it's such a, it's a very subjective kind of thing. You know, it really depends on who you are, how you approach the situation. But I have been able to learn a great deal from you know the people above me about how to approach a business situation, which even in a field like rocket science, that still is very important because. Yeah. You know, you can have a brilliant idea, you can have a brilliant way of executing that idea, but if you can't sell someone on that idea, you can't approach a manager, you can't approach, you know, Congress on, you know, we're talking on a very large scale. Yes, here, but, but I mean, uh, if that's what you're eventually yes. wanting to do, uh, you know, there's a great deal of marketing and, yes. and people skills, believe it or not, you know. Commercial space program. I've, yeah, I've, I've always been surprised at how, how much my people skills have improved being a sound engineer, you know, mm-hmm. never thinking that I would never have to really deal with people, you know, and that, at that eventually you get to a point where you realize how ridiculous that notion is, but now, yeah, you um, have to deal with people in pretty much every, uh, every industry. Yeah. I've well, learned. I mean, it's odd because everything's a service industry now, you know, uh, Almost, yeah. I mean, uh, you know, my job is a service industry, you know, in some one way or another. And I guess you could say rocket sciences in its own way, a service industry <laughs> to itself I, or uh, for progress. Work, I work yeah. in the service industry. <laughs> I'm, I work in the service industry. But um, there, there's a great deal of, of selling in the engineering. Well, yeah. I mean, you have to be able to uh, sell, you know, 300 million people on the idea of uh, going to the moon or going to Mars or you know, why, you know, we need 
$2 billion of their taxes to go study some goo that we found on you know, a moon. <laughs> well, there's, that, there's, 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 there's a lot a, of advertising. There's such a big gap, <laughs> especially now, yes. more than ever, between what the public knows about certain issues like uh, engineering or space or... Well, it's, it's a very cloudy industry almost by design. Uh, engineering for the uninitiated is very... It's very technical. There's no way around getting around that. And a lot of people, that's a barrier. Uh, and you can, uh, there's a lot of good people. Uh, I know uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson, uh, mm -hmm. you know, Carl Sagan, Bill Nye. These guys are amazing at bringing down these concepts to the average person and, you know, explaining exactly why this is important, why you should be invested in this. And we need more of those type of people. Uh, because these missions, I mean, yes, they're expensive. Yes, you know, a lot of the times they do seem kind of, <laughs> why Why are we, you know, need to study this very strange specific phenomenon this far away? But uh, nothing bad is going to come from, you know, gaining knowledge. And that's, I think, what people need to remember is that there's no negative consequences of finding something new out. I don't know if this has uh, been as prominent of a subject the past, I don't know, 10 years, because it seemed like NASA kind of went on a hiatus for a little bit yes. after they kind of finished, you know, space station went up, mm -hmm. things got done. Then they were like, well, what are we going to do now? You know, well, thing, there's, and then there's, there's different, you know, it depends on who you talk to within the space industry. Uh, some people would say Mars. Some people would say asteroids. Some people would say uh, energy is the next frontier. Uh, but yeah, I would definitely say in the last 20 years, we've seen a definite stagnation as far as NASA's own development. But recently, we're kind of coming out of that, and we're seeing a definite shift in the direction that NASA's going, as well as the commercial industry that's kind of attached to NASA. I know that I recently read an article on um, solar panels going into space, and, mm -hmm. and more so we're seeing lots of things... Um, come out of the woodwork with people writing about how these possibilities for space could essentially save certain industries here on earth like well, uh, for instance the, uh, the 70s, which is uh, they, like uh, how how possible it's becoming mm -hmm. now how close we actually are to doing yes. something like that uh, you were talking about the solar panels in the 70s there was a uh, research study conducted at the uh, at Stanford University regarding uh, space infrastructure it was a four-year, I believe, uh, research study, you know, headed by members of NASA, members of industry, various uh, Department of Energy, about construction of very large uh, arrays in low Earth orbit that would uh, gather sunlight in very, very large quantities, and they would use microwave beams to transmit this wirelessly back to Earth. And because these beam, these, uh, you know, panels would be outside the Earth's atmosphere, they would be incredibly efficient, much more efficient than they would be on Earth. And because they're in microgravity, you can build them much larger and much thinner. And, you know, the study was done and they, you know, discovered, okay, we could generate this many megawatts of power and it would be wonderful and tremendous. The problem is to get this material up there would almost outweigh the cost benefits in, in the short wow. term. In the long run, it wouldn't. It would more than pay for itself but the problem then was immediately coming up with the billions of dollars needed to you know kickstart that infrastructure process but now we're seeing suddenly when launch costs largely in part due to uh, commercial endeavors 
into like this, SpaceX yes, and things like, like SpaceX, that. SpaceX, Orbital, uh, Sierra Nevada, uh, uh, ULA, uh, which is Boeing and uh, Lockheed Martin. Uh, we are seeing a decrease in launch costs, and these things are becoming more viable and less of a idea and more of a okay well now we can actually put this on the drawing board and kind of look at what are the technical hurdles we need to we need to conquer to get this done so slowly hopefully inching closer to to having an affordable uh, slowly uh, plan. yes uh, and um i know one of the other things was the uh, you were talking about a new gold rush we had talked about what's yes. the new gold rush well Recently, a series of, uh, well, I say recently, in the last 10 years, there were a series of uh, NASA missions launched to the outer solar system, uh, namely New Horizons, the uh, Huygens probe, uh, Juno, which I had the privilege of being a part of at the Johnson Space Center, uh, among several others, uh, including, you know, the Galileo series in the 70s. Uh, in passing out to the... Uh, outer planets they passed through the uh, asteroid belt and were able to do some you know very quick kind of rudimentary prospecting of a lot of these asteroids and data especially from the recent missions that have been returned indicates these aren't just rocks floating out there but these are very mineral rich deposits that are floating out in space what we thought at first might just be you know nickel or you know maybe iron We've now discovered these asteroids, which in some cases are very large, you know, a uh, possibly quarter to half the size of the moon that are almost entirely made out of uh, platinum. Uh, among other, a famous example, a uh, outer solar system object that orbits far out beyond the orbit of Pluto. Mm -hmm. It's an object uh, about two thirds the size, the diameter of uh, Earth's moon. Its orbit is very sharp and increase, it goes very close to the orbit of Jupiter, and it has, it kind of has almost a slingshot orbit, very mm -hmm. highly elliptical. Uh, for millions of years, the carbon in the astro in this very large asteroid has slowly over, you know, through the pressure the in on the mm -hmm. inside of the asteroid, it's compressed into diamond, and so oh, we wow. have this very large, you know, almost perfect diamond. That's orbit, you that's know, about two thirds the size of the moon, almost the uh, size of a moon. And even more, you know, important than these minerals and diamonds and metals, uh, we discovered potential asteroids that contain uh, ice, uh, which could then be turned into liquid water. Which in space, liquid water is more precious than gold because that's so hard to get up into space. Earth is the only place that has liquid water right now. So to get liquid water in space would be would far outweigh the benefits of any kind of gold or which gold has been found uh, of any kind of platinum or precious metals. And so those would be the initial targets. But there are companies. Uh, Planetary Resources is kind of spearheading mm -hmm. this, followed very closely by Deep Space Industries. These are two startups. I know Planetary Resources is based in Seattle. I don't remember where Deep Space Industries is, but these are two companies that have announced very publicly that their goal is to mine asteroids. Um, and they're still very early in the development stage. Uh, and they will most likely have to depend on other companies such as SpaceX, uh, Orbital, uh, for transport to uh, orbit. But uh, seeing as, you know, the value of these asteroids, you're talking about, you know, 
hundreds of thousands of tons of just resources floating. Oh yeah, just out just there doing floating nothing. out there. There's no uh, claim. There's no and a company. The I believe the first company that can get out there and can start you know laying claim to these uh, asteroids uh, will find themselves extraordinarily wealthy as well as any investors in this company. So how do you think that'll change the dynamic of, I mean, our whole planet? Let's that see. I'm not an economist. I'm not a you know financial expert in any way. So I don't really know how. I'm I'm interested in how that will affect in a primarily you know gold based society, which you know ours is, and we're a fiat based right. currency. But well, because what the introduction such a, of such rare metals in suddenly massive quantities? I mean, that would be do. crazy. For, I mean, even if potentially a company were to own that, like mm -hmm. they could do almost anything they wanted. Well, yes, as far, especially, you know, as far as space development, because they would have access to the raw materials, the capital that would be needed to build larger structures, more infrastructure. And so they would be at a very like a good self sustaining, point. Yes, basically. That's the idea is eventually get a self sustaining industry where we don't have to constantly loft raw materials up from low earth orbit because that can be very costly or get, you know, have to get funding from government. Well, yes. And the government at that or, level, you're talking about, to... you know, not just billions, you're talking about trillion dollar operations and there's no government on earth that, right. uh, you know, no sane government that would finance that. And while we're on the topic of kind of what this looks like on a grand scale, um, the only company I guess real the the forefront company behind commercializing this sort of thing space commercializing space would um, SpaceX right yes space and they've space made the exploration most, technologies and they've made the most headway with you know if at the very least um, not um, being able to at least not um, soon. To send someone up into space or send someone to another planet very at the close. very least at uh, taking advantage of resources or taking advantage of a supply and demand, mm -hmm. I guess. Um, how would you describe SpaceX well, uh, and why they're so important? For those of you who aren't kind of familiar with all this, this space jargon, I, I kind of you know realize now that I'm kind of throwing all these <laughs> words out here that you know, a lot of people may not know what they're talking, you know, what I'm talking about. But uh, right now, uh, the way it works is that NASA doesn't really do a lot of launching on their own. Uh, NASA will, you know, is a, mostly a scientific organization. They do research. And so a scientist at NASA may wish to study, you know, some, I think we said a goo or something mm -hmm. on a, a moon of, jupiter or you know what what have you and he will you know file kind of his research his thesis uh you know what he wants to do and if his his you know idea is approved then he will get funding and it moves on you know then nasa says okay well now we need a machine a probe a spacecraft mm -hmm. to you know get out and so nasa will do some preliminary design of the specialized instruments you know whatever Whoever the science team is working with, they might come up with some kind of you know device to measure the goo specifically. Then you know they'll need a spacecraft, so they might you know throw out a uh, what's called a uh, request for proposal document. And many uh, contractor companies, such as Boeing, uh, Lockheed Martin, 
uh, SpaceX, mm-hmm. uh, Orbital Sciences, these are all aerospace companies that some of them, like Boeing and Lockheed, their primary industry is uh, fighter jets, missiles, you know, military ordnance, but they also, right. with that, they can also build spacecraft. And so, you know, these companies, various companies will kind of bid and present designs for, you know, here's our, you know, answer to this challenge. Here's the rocket here's or spacecraft. And... and here's how much it'll cost. Here's how long it'll take to build. Uh, and that's the way it's been since almost the beginning. Recently, however, you have SpaceX, which is not a defense company. They don't build missiles or airplanes. They only build rockets. And they can do that because their prices are so low because they don't outsource. They don't, uh, they build everything. They build everything in house. I think they do. There was a really interesting, uh, 60 minutes kind of inside look at SpaceX. And I think, uh, they said it best, uh, metal goes in one end of the factory and a completed spacecraft comes out the other. Uh, it, as far as, you know, an engineering and logistics, from that perspective, it's it's really amazing what they've been able to do as far as self-sufficiency and in-house design. Uh, and very quickly, they have become a favorite among uh, some of the NASA you know personnel as far as so far in their really, Falcon 9 series. Well, yeah, series. definitely being more like uh, aligned with what yes. NASA originally set yeah, out to do. Yeah, because they aren't place. a defense company. They, If you go to the uh, website, SpaceX.com, their mission statement very clearly is that uh, the company was founded to uh, push humanity to colonize the other planets and to kind of pave the way and make that possible. Uh, so yeah, they're more a lot more in line with what NASA's goal is, and they can do it much cheaper. And very soon, I you know they're aiming to be the next kind of contractor uh, taxi service to ferry astronauts to the you know the space station and you know other areas that they might want to go such as lunar orbit or an asteroid mission they've never had any accidents either well their their initial way back in 2003 2004 their falcon 1 series was a small you know unmanned rocket uh there were several problems in development but uh once those were solved they have moved on to their this much larger you know fast forward to about 2010 their first launch of their uh you know fully uh, developed, fleshed out their first commercial mission to the space station. Since then, they have had no uh, launch failures. They have a perfect record. Now, keep in mind, they are a very young company. Uh, they haven't had near as many launches as some of the giants like Boeing and Lockheed have had. But relatively speaking, they're doing a very good job. They're very... he, The, the CEO of SpaceX, CEO and CTO, Elon Musk has done a very good job of kind of finding the best engineers in the field, the best quality assurance experts, the best safety experts, and has brought them on board. And the you know the level of quality that they have set there, the bar is extremely high. And so nothing comes out of that factory that's not near perfect. It's a, a lot, I think somebody else described it, it's much less a rocket, it's more of a sports car. It's a... Uh, <laughs> A sports rocket. Yeah, it's, it's a, a very, very uh, high-precision vehicle, even in terms of rocket science. It's a, it's like the rocket science of rocket science. The Falcon 9 and the accompanying the Dragon spacecraft that sits atop the Falcon 9 that actually goes out into space, those are both 
very well-designed vehicles. A lot of intense design work went into those to, you know, to make sure that they are the cutting edge. They are extremely safe. They are extremely lightweight. They're extremely cost-effective. So that has all of these factors have put SpaceX far and ahead of the other contractors at the moment. And that's really kind of what any industry is about. All these big companies that used to be these monopolies mm-hmm. um, are starting to see startups really getting traction and really actually developing great alternatives in all mm-hmm. sorts of industry. Like Wait, Competition uh, is what drives innovation. And right, that was right. the problem, I personally believe, you know, during the uh, you know, 80s, 90s, and the beginning of uh, the 21st century was that there wasn't a lot of competition among contractors, especially after the two primary contractors, Boeing and Lockheed, had formed a joint company. Mm-hmm. They wouldn't have to compete with each other. There was, an, there was a monopoly. Uh, and as the shuttle declined, there really wasn't any, you know, incentive for them to bring anything new to the table. Right. They so could take as long of, as they know, wanted. They could, you know, raise launch prices to make a, you know, exorbitant profit. Take as long as they wanted. To. Yes. You know, and so you had really long schedule dates. You had a lot of bureaucracy and paperwork as they were lobbying people, you know, congressmen to, to choose their idea over uh, you know, an alternative, but now that SpaceX has enough experience and actual flight hardware, you are suddenly seeing that companies, you know, on every angle are suddenly having to up their game to still mm-hmm. stay relevant. And right. that's very good for space. And is uh, this kind of brings up, since we're talking about Boeing and Lockheed and uh, SpaceX and that joint company, a uh, real interesting development has happened with uh, Russia and the Ukraine, everything going on over there, mm-hmm. um, and kind of might push SpaceX ahead or give them a sort of an yes. edge. Uh, again, can you explain that? For those situation? Not, uh, following a lot of the Ukraine stuff, uh, NASA recently uh, issued a public statement that in everything but you know essential operation of the space station, they would be cutting all ties with the Russian uh, space agency, Roskomos. Uh, Which is a big deal. Yes, that's a very big deal. Uh, and they didn't work together on a lot of things, but you know the space station was obviously the largest thing they've worked together on in that uh, the United States has control over the space station. We run it from uh, Houston. However, they control access. Uh, because Which is they, interesting. <laughs> they control you know how to get to and from the space station. So that's a very interesting development, and I'm kind of waiting to see the repercussions of this. But... Another thing a lot of people hasn't been made public yet is that Boeing and Lockheed, or ULA as a company, they develop and build the uh, Atlas V as well as the Delta IV series of uh, heavy lift vehicles, uh, primarily used by military, uh, government-related projects, a few commercial satellites. They're unmanned rockets, and they launch it mostly satellites, you know, large spacecraft. And you said they do mostly missiles anyway. Well, yeah, uh, they mostly build uh, missiles and air, airplanes. Uh, you know, Boeing builds a ton of commercial jets, whereas Lockheed is much more uh, military jets, aircraft. Uh, but in these two vehicles in particular, the Atlas V and the Delta IV, they require uh, both of them require a Russian a Russian components that are manufactured and sold from Russia, and so with this new development, uh, there was this issue. A bill was you know kind of brought up for Congress called the uh, uh, Responsible Space Resources Act or something like it that would limit these companies from 
you know, buying materials related to spacecraft from, you know, the agency that, you know, NASA has publicly said, we're not doing any business with them because of the Ukraine issue and the, you know, human rights violations and all right. of that. So Lockheed and uh, Boeing are at an impasse. Well, it's say. kind of, it's, it's kind of, it's a weird situation right now. They still have many vehicles stockpiled, which it would be really, mm-hmm. you know, there's a lot of slated missions that are still going to continue despite this. But in the long run, it means that they, you know, unless NASA changes its stance on this, which, you know, that could happen. Uh, right. It, I mean, it, yeah, it, you're right. Under certain you know, circumstances, it could mean that they will have to develop an entirely new series of launch vehicles, which could take a very long time. Um, whereas SpaceX has a very you know, capable launch vehicle. Uh, the, the Falcon 9, which is, you know, already, it's a medium lift vehicle that you know has already made several launches and also they've got prototypes ready for the uh, falcon heavy which is in development which already has at least a five-year lead on boeing and lockheed as far as very heavy launch vehicles go and so it would put spacex at a very definite advantage so it'll be interesting to see how that really plays out so in the context of space we see you know these developments um with uh resources possibly being able to tap into those also being able to um, maybe do commercial space flights things Mm -hmm. like that are slowly getting closer and closer to uh, reality as far as mars is concerned when will we be able to get them on mars well if i nasa officially has said that we want to aim for a human mars mission uh, by at least the uh, 2030s uh, ideally between the year uh, 2030 and 2035, uh, we would aim for a human Mars mission. Uh, the problem with going to Mars is that there's really, there's two ways you can do it. You can either do a very quick landing in a very you know, similar way to the, the moon landings where you, because of the way the planet you know rotates and its position relative to Earth, you, you know, can either go and then come right back so that the uh, window is very close or you can stay for the whole trip. Mm-hmm. So you, your options are basically a 30-day mission or a 500-day mission. And many people have, re- you know, a lot of scientists, engineers have realized that the 500-day mission would be much more beneficial because then that allows you to kind of use methane to generate your own fuel for return. That allows you to conduct much more science, get a lot more done, Mm-hmm. You know, study more worth the climate the... a lot more. So they, a lot of them are opting for the 500-day mission. This presents all sorts of problems, uh, which you could spend an entire afternoon talking so about. So what is that, like a year and th- a third of a year? Yeah, uh, more, close more to it. And this, I should clarify, this is 500 Earth days, not 500 Mars days. Those are very different. Uh, well, how would that translate to Mars days? Uh, I think it would be closer to maybe a year on mars because okay. mars rotates a little bit uh faster than earth does uh and it, it's but it's period around the sun it's you know the time it takes to travel around the sun is much slower than earth because you don't want to travel when say you know earth is on one side of the sun and mars is on the other because then you're talking about you know up to a year and a half in space and as dangerous <laughs> as mars is space is much more you want to limit your time in space as much as possible because of radiation, because of solar flares, because of all the you know, micrometeoroids, all the myriad of things that can go wrong to your spacecraft. So we'd want to cut it down to about a five to six month journey. Uh, 
I've read articles, you know, talking about using, you know, alternate methods of propulsion, such as, you know, electric plasma propulsion that could cut the voyage down to three months. Uh, but that's still, again, that's very theoretical that it hasn't actually been built. So using a chemical rocket, the kind that we use now, uh, I would say about a five to six month journey, then 500 days, and then another, you know, five to six month journey. So keeping humans along, you know, alive, right. healthy, for that amount of time, you know, given the extremely tight weight requirements of, you know, the capabilities of the vehicle, how much money you're willing to spend. It, so there's like, a, that's like the what the what we do with the moon, but like times 10. Yes. It's, or, you know, uh, it's just so much. This, it would be uh, incredibly more difficult than the moon. Because, um, I mean, as far as impressive as the moon landings were, it's, it was still very close to Earth. We were still within the Earth's uh, uh, magnetic field, which means that the exposure to radiation during the transit was much, much, much lower than it would be on Mars. And so as a result, you would have to, you know, kind of shield whatever your uh, spacecraft is from a lot of this radiation. And by doing that, you know, by increasing the weight of this shielding, right. you have to then decrease the weight somewhere else. So you can't decrease fuel, obviously. Uh then you have to say, well, okay, well, then we can decrease uh, in life support, but that's not a good idea. So you have to, you know, think about it. It's, it's a balancing act. Uh, a lot of this, you know, new rocket science is really, it's, it's a balancing act. It's trying to figure out what is the best ratio of this, you know, component to this. So are uh, we talking about one person or multiple people well, first, the first I, time? I would say definitely uh, for anything longer than 30 days, uh, you would need at least a crew of about six. Why is that? Why would you? Why is that? What does the number of people have anything to do with? Well, the because you add more time? people. There's a there's a golden kind of ratio. Uh, if you have too few people, uh, then you know there's risks. You know, if somebody gets sick, and but this person, you know, or somebody dies, you know, uh, and their function was essential to the operation of the vessel. Mm -hmm. Well, then you know you're up a creek. <laughs> you're you're, <laughs> right, you're very. Yeah. Then that pretty much means the other, you know, people are going to die. Uh, you have too many people, it becomes unmanageable because you just have too much food, water, air that you have to bring. And so it just gets kind of to where then it costs trillions of dollars and it's undoable. Just, you know, it costs prohibitive. Six people would be ideal. And unlike the moon missions where every astronaut, you know, was a specialist in one field, astronauts for a mars mission would kind of have to be all, all of the them same. jack of all trades you know there might mm -hmm. be an expert who might you know know all about the engines however he would also might you know have to know about hydroponics and about food and a little bit about medicine because everybody might have to you know do interchangeable and be able to learn extremely quickly and be extremely resourceful and you know be able to get along with people you know for a very long very That's isolated yeah. very you know kind of cramped amount of time so if this were ever to really happen well um, not i, I say in when. real life <laughs> all right if when with when this happens I mean, it'll be huge mm -hmm. for the world like everybody will be watching and it'll be i'd hope i'd hope it would be a big deal i mean it's i mean of course i mean it'd have to be a big deal i mean it's mars mm -hmm. like getting to mars in addition to another planet another, another non-moon planet, planet another yes. non-moon planet but hopefully in 20 years we'll know. <laughs> yeah, or less than 20 years. Possibly sooner. I know SpaceX, private companies, uh, namely SpaceX, have uh, kind of put 
support their interest in doing a commercial mission, uh, you know, regardless of, of you know using NASA. Mm-hmm. And I, they've even you know been extremely optimistic and talked about something like a uh, a mission in you know the late twenty twenties. Twenty twenty five was mentioned by Elon Musk at one point. I I think he's scaled that back since then. <laughs> right. But, uh, that's still, that's pretty, that's pretty close. Um, that's, yeah, that's pretty that's, close. That's like about 10, you know, a little more than 10 years away. And in we'll space, be alive. That's all. That yeah. Oh yeah. We're going to be alive. Um, hopefully, but, uh, that's still a very close. There's, there's, there's so many problems that need to be solved, which they can. I mean, there's uh, problems being solved every day, you know, new developments, new, you know, I mean, the, uh, the introduction of, you know, complex polymers, you know, you talk about carbon fiber, stuff that didn't exist, you know, with the moon missions or really even, you know, at the time of the shuttle that are now, you know, fair play that, okay, now these new technologies, you know, uh, computers, I mean, have decreased in size since the Apollo that, you know, that's not even, you know, that would have been a great issue, but now it's, that's almost, that's easy to solve. That's, you know, and that's a big purpose of the space station is figuring out a lot of these issues, you know, technical problems and trying to solve them in space. And that's what a lot of people don't see because they see, you know, the astronauts, you know, in the educational videos kind of showing how water works in space and all this stuff. People get, get the incorrect idea that that's all they're doing up there when the bulk of their research is based on kind of off earth studies about you know, how do humans survive in long periods of time in space? You know, how do these electrical systems, computer systems function? However, that's to the average person, that's not as exciting. The results aren't as immediately visible. And so people don't, a lot of people don't uh, get that that's a big purpose of the space station and why it needs to continue to be funded. And from my point of view, or I guess from anybody who's really not an engineer or an aerospace engineer, why... Why is this important? Like, why is space at all important? Because I know a lot of people have a viewpoint that it's not important uh, think, because because they don't see the direct. You know, it's very yes, distant. It, it's, it's something that's it's, very, it's very almost distant, even theoretical. Be completed in the next twenty years. Because you tell somebody in twenty years we'll be on the moon, or I'm sorry, uh, on Mars, <laughs> and um, somebody doesn't. You know, a lot of people would just think about that and go, "No, nah, it's not going to happen." Like. Of course, that's impossible. Well, I think um, it's nothing, you know, very few things are, um, I'm, I try to use the, uh, the word impossible with a lot of caution. <laughs> uh, just because it's, we don't know how to do it right now does not mean eventually, you know, we won't, we won't figure out how to do it or some company, you know, will figure out how to make money from it and then it will right. be very possible. So we'd kind of touched on this a little bit, but really give me your take on why, why you're an aerospace engineer? Like, think, why is space important? Why not just stay and stick with Earth and stuff? You know, live here. We live here. Where you know we've been here for thousands, thousands of years. Mm-hmm. What's the problem? I think uh, Elon Musk. He's the uh, CEO and founder and chief engineer of SpaceX. He said it best. He said, you know, when people have asked him the similar question, why space? He said, I believe that a, a future where humanity is out. Uh, colonizing and exploring the cosmos is fundamentally more exciting than a future where we aren't. And mm-hmm. by that, I think he meant that his his core belief is that eventually we're going to have to expand. Eventually, Earth will not be able to support as many people as there are. Right. Uh, and there are several solutions to that problem. You know, there's 
different people, depending on who you talk to, have said several different things. You know, some people have said, well, you know, uh, maybe limiting the number of births, you know, instigating some kind of right. state-controlled yeah. birth control, which, which I don't like that idea, you know. Uh, yeah, that's that's pretty scary. Yeah, I'm pretty stuff. sure. That I think there was a group in uh, around around night in World War II that uh, had another very different approach to how to deal with uh, mass populations. And yeah, what were they called? That's not a very good... Uh, I, don't, I don't believe I don't that. remember. That's a very good solution. So uh, you... But another solution that recently figured out is, well, we could go outward. We could expand to other planets. We could make other planets like Earth. You know, we don't have to stay here. And I believe it... I mean, right now, it's not a necessity. Right now, we don't need it. Mm -hmm. However, by the time we do need it, by the time it is something that we really need to go move outward, if we don't begin now working on that infrastructure and the foundation, then that option won't be available. And so I believe that space isn't just this something that's exciting, it's also a necessity. If the human race is going to survive the next thousand years, I think we will have to make that jump to expand to other planets. In the same way that kind of in the 1500s, you saw this migration from Europe to the New World. It wasn't even for them necessarily a population issue. It was opportunities. As you know, an environment becomes more populated, you know, you have increased, you know, trouble with you know society. You have right things start getting all about yeah, things start breaking slowly. down, and so uh, you really need to expand. And I think Carl Sagan was very apt. Uh, in his book, The Pale Blue Dot, the way he described it, he said that humanity historically, he says we were a very nomadic species. You know, we didn't, originally we didn't stay in one place. We moved from place to place. He said, and I, he, you know, he still thinks that there's a lot of stuff about that that's still, you know, ingrained in us, that humanity, we need a frontier for fundamental psychological, emotional reasons. Um, we need some place that's new, some place that's out there. And right now, just how that, you know, at one time that was the new world. Right. At one time that was the oceans. Right now that is space. And I think that, you know, whether or not, you know, people want to go to space, we'll still have that interest. There's still, you know, no matter, even if it's companies doing it on their own dime, there will still be people interested in when the technology's there to go out into space and to begin, you know, doing the groundwork for colonization and expansion, because there's something kind of inside you that drives these type of people to go out there. Certainly the case for me, that's why I am so interested in it. And that's why it's my passion, why I've chosen to pursue, you know, uh, rocket engineering, spacecraft design, because I do think it's very important. I think it's something that in the long run, something that will greatly benefit humanity as a whole. So space really is the final frontier. Yes, space sure. is the final. Until we figure out, you know... So, <laughs> an, alter, an alternate dimension. Yeah, for him, uh, until uh, that, uh, yeah, space how to is... Become, how to become, how to frontier. go into the world of Tron. Mm -hmm. It'll yeah. be the final frontier. Well, yes. uh, so it looks like we're closer and closer to We are realizing. very close. So uh, we'll it's see. a very t exciting time. Uh, you know, we're... Everybody, you know, if you're listening right now and, you know, you're from 18 to, uh, you know, 30 in your lifetime, you're going to see some amazing things happen. Uh, I can almost guarantee that. All right. Well, thank you very much for well, joining for me, me on this crazy podcast, uh, really helping me out, trying to to really flesh this out and see what this program is going to be about. But um, 
really enjoyed talking with you about oh, yeah. all these issues. They're all very interesting. I'm sure you do. <laughs> they're all they're all very interesting topics to yes. me. Even if I'm not an engineer, you know, frontiers and and you know, moving forward and seeing you know, 30 years from now how things are going to be. That's mm-hmm. all really I think interesting, and uh, I think it's important for uh, our generation to really be kind of aware of the impact that yeah we are going to have on that that future i think it's very interesting and uh, and i really thank you for coming and sharing your thoughts thank about you. it and kind of informing us on what uh space is going to be about in you know the next couple of decades so so uh thank you very much everybody you've been listening to trevor roberts and jacob estrada on the no compromise culture commentary um I guess I'll see you next time when we do our third episode. Um, you can go ahead and go to the website, look at all the podcasts, the previous one I did with Jeremy Borden, um, talking about chivalry. And um, the next one will be in just a couple of weeks. So uh, stay tuned and let us know what you think about this podcast. Let you know if there's anything you want to change or anything you really liked, um, especially engineering students or anything like that. Or we would love your input on uh some of the things we talked about on the show today. We'll see you next time. Thank you.